Welcome to The Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Em. And I'm Kaz. And today we're following on from a previous episode titled Hashtag Me Too, where we talked about sexual violence perpetrated against biblical women. So if you've not listened to that episode, we would encourage you to check it out. But today we're going to think about what the Bible says about sexual violence against men. Now, a quick heads up at the start, we'll be discussing how male rape is understood and represented in the Bible, and we'll draw on some contemporary cases too. So if you find this subject difficult to listen to, you may want to skip the episode. And as always, we'll leave some links in our show notes to resources and support services in case some of our listeners want to check them out. Now, am I right in thinking, Kaz, that sexual violence perpetrated against biblical men isn't something we see discussed so much in biblical studies. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, while feminist biblical scholars have done some really great research on female victims of sexual violence in the Bible, there's been a lot less discussion about male victims, for sure. And it's the same with male rape in contemporary culture too, isn't it? I mean, we don't hear so many reports about it, we don't see it being discussed nearly so much in academia or in the media or on true crime platforms. And that's despite the fact that it really is a significant problem. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, statistics vary from country to country, but research from the United States and United Kingdom suggests that around one in six men experience sexual violence or sexual abuse during their lifetime, either as children or when they're adults. But, you know, I think that figure could well be higher because we all know that rape is a crime that is chronically underreported. I think here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, it's around 6% of men who will experience sexual violence within their lifetime. But yes, I've read that underreporting is particularly high among men and boys because of the massive sense of stigma and shame surrounding male sexual victimisation. Yeah, and I think that it makes it so important that we do start talking about it more openly, and not only in academia or in biblical studies, but in wider culture too. Because, you know, silence is such a crucial factor in keeping that stigma and shame alive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's take up that challenge and start as we mean to continue. So what do you have planned for this episode? Well, I want to talk about a couple of biblical texts that depict men as victims of sexual violence. Now, one text is in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, and the other one is from the New Testament. And I want us to think about the way that these texts reflect some of the myths and misperceptions that surround male sexual assault. So are these myths and misperceptions similar to the rape myths we talked about in our hashtag Me Too episode when we focused on female victims of sexual violence? Yeah, they're not exactly the same, but I think they're created through similar processes and, and they rely on the same patriarchal stereotypes about masculinity and femininity. Mm. And I think, you know, they're just as harmful as rape myths relating to female victims because they make certain assumptions about men who are sexually assaulted. They blame them for their own victimisation and they also downplay the trauma of sexual violence experienced by male victims. And so I, I want to explore these myths in more detail as we go along today. But uh, first, Em, can you tell me, here's a quiz, what <laughs> biblical texts do you know that mention male sexual assault? Well, for starters, I can think of a few stories where men are threatened with rape, although it doesn't actually happen. So there's the threatened gang rape of the Levite priest in Judges 19. Yeah. And interestingly, a very similar story happens in Genesis 19, 
where two heavenly messengers are staying with Abraham's nephew Lot in the city of Sodom, and they're threatened with gang rape by a mob of local men. Mm-hmm. Then, in Genesis 39, Joseph, the son of Jacob, is sexually harassed and threatened with rape while he's a slave in Egypt. And so in this story, Joseph's harasser and would-be rapist is the wife of his master Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's officials. Now, Potiphar's wife keeps trying to coerce Joseph into having sex with her, and one day she goes so far as to grab him, but he manages to escape. Yeah, although then poor Joseph's thrown into prison because Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to rape her. And of course, because she's a powerful woman and Joseph's a slave, who do you think they believe? Yeah, poor Joseph, right? Yeah. This part of the story is actually often overlooked or downplayed when it's retold in modern contexts, maybe in part because of the myth that men can't be victims of sexual violence. Hmm. But before we get too far down that track, there's also another story where the rape of a man does happen not once, but twice. And it takes place later in Genesis 19, when Abraham's nephew Lot is raped by his two daughters after they get him intoxicated. Yeah, that is such a bizarre story. Um, And so I decided to choose it as one of the texts we'll be talking about today. Now, I've already mentioned we'll be looking at a New Testament text too. So can you guess which one? Okay, so I don't know a whole lot of New Testament texts featuring sexual violence against men, but I am aware of some fantastic work that is being done on the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to guess Matthew 27. Yes, you are correct. Yes. (laughs) Um, And this is where we read about Jesus being forcibly stripped naked prior to his crucifixion, which is, in my mind, a form of sexual assault. Yeah, it it totally is. Yeah. So what we'll do, we'll take a look at that text along with Genesis 19 and we'll think about why some people aren't always willing or able to recognise the sexualized violence in either of these biblical texts. Excellent. Sounds good. Okay, let's start off with the story of Lot and his daughters. Could you give us an overview of Genesis 19? So the main protagonist of the story is Abraham's nephew Lot, and he lives in the city of Sodom. And as I mentioned a moment ago, Lot is offering hospitality to two guests who happen to be angelic messengers. Now, it's not clear if Lot realizes his two guests are angels, but that's not really important here. So they've just finished their evening meal when the men of Sodom surround the house and demand that Lot sends out his two guests so that they can gang rape them. Now, Lot refuses to do this and instead offers the crowd his two virgin daughters. But thankfully, before anything else happens, the two angelic messengers intervene and strike all the men of Sodom blind so that they can't find the door of Lot's house. The angels then tell Lot he has to leave Sodom immediately as God is planning to destroy the city. And after a few delays, Lot and the family eventually leave. And of course, on their journey, Lot's wife makes the infamous mistake of looking back at Sodom and she is turned into a pillar of salt. Now, Lot and his daughters eventually go and live in the mountains. And while they're there, the elder daughter tells her sister that she's worried that there are no men around and she wonders how they're going to have children and continue the family line. So she comes up with a plan that they get their father drunk and have sex with him in the hope that they'll become pregnant. So over the course of two nights, basically that's what they do. And on both occasions, Lot is completely unaware of what's happened. The two women become pregnant and give birth to sons who go on to be the ancestors of the Moabite and the Ammonite people, both long-standing enemies of the Israelites. 
And I, particularly when the perpetrator is a woman, we often hear comments such as, you know, oh, men can't be forced to have sex against their will. It's physically impossible. You know, they must have wanted it to happen. And you know, regardless of the perpetrator's gender, there's also an assumption that sort of real men should be able to defend themselves against rape. Uh, a real man would be able to fight off his attacker. Actually, that reminds me of Shia LaBeouf, the American actor and director. Have you heard about that case, Kaz? Yes, I have, but but remind me of the details. So in 2014, he disclosed during an interview that he'd been raped by a woman who'd come to see his performance in an art project called Hashtag I Am Sorry. And during the performance, he sat in a room in silence with a paper bag over his head and members of the public could come into the room one by one and interact with him in private while he sat there in silence. And he said that one female visitor had physically and sexually assaulted him while she was in the room with him. And the public response to this disclosure was was kind of mixed. Some people were very empathetic and supportive, but there were also a lot of comments like, you know, why didn't he just fight the woman off? He was probably stronger than her. Or why didn't he just say no to her? There were kind of there were lots of comments along the lines of a woman can't possibly have sex with a man against his will. If it happened, he must have wanted it to happen. Mm, oh, that's so, that's really frustrating because you know it's it's not true that men cannot be raped. That's that's not how the male body works. And we know that some male victims can become physically aroused during their assault, even when they're scared or in pain, and that can be a massive source of shame and trauma for them. But, you know, it doesn't mean they weren't victimised or coerced. Another equally harmful myth about male rape is that victims are in some way to blame for their assault. Now, this is true for all rape victims, regardless of their gender. And we spoke about it in our hashtag MeToo episode as well. But there's this really common assumption that victims must have been, air quotes, asking for it, Mm. either by the way they were dressed or how they were behaving or if they were intoxicated and unable to defend themselves. So thinking about Lot, Mm -hmm. I wonder if some readers might blame him for what happened because he was drunk. Mm. Although it's so frustrating because even if a victim is intoxicated, whether they're a man or a woman, doesn't mean that they're asking to be raped, right? doesn't mean that they're in any way to blame. In fact, it makes them even more vulnerable and that can be taken advantage of by their rapist or even planned by the rapist. And I think that's what's happened to Lot. His daughters deliberately get him drunk so that they could rape him. It's totally not his fault. No, it's not. Not his fault at all. And it reminds me of a recent case um, and it's actually the most prolific case of serial rape in UK legal history involving the rape of at least 200 men in Manchester between 2015 and 2017. Goodness. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. Um, so 38-year-old Reinhard Sinaga, who was the perpetrator, he used to attempt to sort of befriend men as they were leaving a local nightclub, then invite them back to his flat, which was just around the corner. And you could see him often targeting men who were a little bit drunk he would tell them that he was this good Samaritan figure who wanted to look after them. You know, he would offer to call them a cab or, or help them out in some other way. But once they were in his flat, he offered them a drink that he'd drugged. And then when they were unconscious, he sexually assaulted them and often recording the assaults on his phone. Oh, that's absolutely disgusting. Oh, it's horrific, isn't it? Yeah. 
And if I recall, quite a few of Sanaga's victims weren't even aware that they'd actually been sexually assaulted because he'd drugged them. And they'd only found out later when the police were able to discover their identity. That must have been incredibly traumatizing for those victims. Yeah, I I read a quote from one of his victims who said that, you know, when the police knocked on his door to tell him what had happened, to tell them that that they were a victim of Sanaga, you know, his his life just changed forever. It, It was never the same again. It's utterly heartbreaking. It is, yeah. Again, it makes me think of Lot. I mean, he had no idea that his daughters had raped him. Although I wonder if they ever told him or if he guessed after they gave birth to their sons. Yeah, I, I guess he must have because, and, and certainly both his daughters gave their sons names that pretty much gave the game away. His elder daughter called her son Moab, which literally means from father. Mm. And the younger daughter called her son Ben-Ami, which, is, which means son of my kinsman. So they didn't really try to hide it from him, did they? No, no. It's interesting that the text doesn't tell us anything about Lot's emotional response or even hint at the trauma he would surely have felt when he realised what had happened to him. Yeah, I mean, like some of the female victims of rape we read about in the Bible, there's a huge silence around Lot's own response to his assault or how he processed his trauma. But in his case, it's even more explicit because he's totally oblivious to being a victim, at least at first. And I I wonder if that actually taps into another myth about male rape, which is centred around the misperception that male victims suffer less trauma than female victims. And I think particularly if the perpetrator is a woman, there's this quite toxic assumption that you know, any straight man would enjoy the experience rather than being harmed by it. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? I wonder if it kind of draws on that wider patriarchal understanding of men as being sort of naturally hardwired to want sex all the time and you know to aggressively seek out opportunities to have sex whenever they can. So even when a man is coerced into having sex, maybe there's a misperception that he'll automatically get some pleasure out of the experience that you know it won't be entirely unwelcome. Ugh, that's so frustrating because it frames rape as a sexual event rather than a violent assault. Yeah. And it completely ignores the issue of consent. Some men may enjoy consensual sex with women, but that doesn't mean they won't be traumatized by a non-consensual sexual assault. And even if they have no memory of the assault, it's not to say that they can't be traumatized when they do learn about it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel really bad for Lot as a victim of sexual harm. But I also can't forget what he did in Sodom when he offered his two daughters up to the crowd of gang rapists in place of the two male guests. Mm. So he is a victim, to be sure, but I don't know if he's being presented as the most sympathetic of victims. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But I guess then just because a rape victim isn't the most likable person or they've done some very dodgy things in their past, it it doesn't mean that they're not being victimised. It doesn't mean they can't feel traumatised by their assault. No, that's true. And actually, that reminds me of the Shia LaBeouf case again. The journalist who wrote the article for The Guardian about LaBeouf's disclosure of rape really emphasised his alcohol addiction and his erratic behaviour and his mental health issues around that time. And I read quite a few comments where people drew on all of this to suggest that maybe we shouldn't believe his story about being assaulted because he was an unreliable and unsympathetic figure. Ah, right, okay. But I also read a really great response by journalist Lindy West 
And she said, and these are her words, a victim doesn't have to be relatable or reliable or likable or normal or even a good person for you to believe them. You can be utterly baffled by someone's every move and still take their victimization seriously. Oh, yeah, that is such a great quote. And, and I've read that article too. I remember Lindy West also made a really excellent point that, you know, a person's mental health or their intoxication or the stress they're under are sometimes the reason why they're vulnerable to sexual assault in the first place. Yeah. And that made me think about Lot again. You know, he'd been through so much recent trauma. He'd been threatened by the men of Sodom. He'd lost his home. He'd lost his wife. He'd seen the city he was living in destroyed by God. And the text makes clear that he's totally terrified he won't survive. He's so terrified he ends up hiding out in the mountains. And, you know, I wonder if that created a perfect storm where he was more vulnerable to his daughter's plans to get him drunk and then rape him. Yes. I mean, he's in such a vulnerable place, both emotionally and physically, Maybe he welcomed the alcohol his daughters gave him as a sort of self-medication to help him deal with all his recent traumas. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's really that's a good idea, yeah. But can I go back to that issue of Lot offering the gang rapists his daughter earlier in the chapter? Some biblical interpreters suggest that this could be why his daughters decided to rape him in the first place. It was almost like a form of revenge. Okay, so so because their father tried to use and abuse them, now they're going to use and abuse him? Yeah, exactly. That's an interesting interpretation. I mean, I, I don't know. The text doesn't say anything about that explicitly, does it? No. The daughter's main concern seems to be that there are no men around up there in the mountains and they really want to have children to continue the family line and to carry on the this social tradition of being mothers. The elder daughter's words are, and this is a quote from the text, she says to her sister, our father is old and there's no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. Okay, so I guess the daughter's willingness to take advantage of their father could have been shaped by their memories of what he was willing to subject them to in Sodom, but we can't know for sure. No, I, I don't think we can. There's one final thing I want to bring up about Lot. At the end of the story, both women have achieved what they wanted. They're continuing the family line and they're fulfilling their societal role as mothers. Now, in the process, though, they seem to destroy Lot's role as family patriarch. He just kind of disappears from the Genesis story and we never hear about him again. So, I mean, what do you, you think about Lot um, and, and the way he's portrayed, particularly kind of af after this event? To me, he seems like a totally broken man by the end of the story. Mm. He's broken by trauma after trauma after trauma, the last one being his daughter's sexual assaults. But as we said earlier, his trauma isn't expressed explicitly in the biblical text. So do you think that makes it harder to emphasize with him as a tragic figure? Yeah, yeah, I do. And it, that, it reminds me of another myth about male rape. You know, men aren't supposed to experience trauma after their assault. We, we expect them to, air quotes, man up because idealized masculinity is all about toughness and aggression. It's not about vulnerability and victimization. Mm. So there's this kind of toxic belief that a man's rape undermines his masculinity. If he's been raped, he's understood to have failed as a man because men are supposed to be sexually proactive. It's women who are meant to be sexually passive. It's women we expect to be sexually victimized, not men. Ugh, that's almost doubly toxic, eh? These myths are 
terrible for everyone involved. Yes, they, they really are. They really are. There's this belief that real men can't get raped. Then male rape victims aren't real men anymore. They've broken masculine expectations. And, and for that reason, they're stigmatized and shamed. And thinking back to the entire Genesis 19 narrative, I wonder if Lot's masculinity was actually under threat right from the start. I mean, back in Sodom, he can't protect his guests from their would-be gang rapists. He relies on these guests to save the day. So he's failed as a host, which would be a source of shame and dishonor in itself. And then he fails to protect his daughters by offering them up to the rapists. He can't even protect his wife from being turned into a pillar of salt. And even when the angels urge him to leave Sodom immediately because it's about to be destroyed by God, he doesn't take any decisive action here either. He tries to tell his daughter's fiancés that they need to leave, but the two men just laugh at him and think he's joking. Yeah, so, so he's clearly not a figure of respect in the eyes of these two men, is he? And, and I think that's another sign of his failed masculinity. I think we also see it the following morning when the two angels have to literally grab him and force him to leave Sodom because he's sort of dithering about so much. They tell him to head to the mountains, but he's terrified he won't survive the journey. And he pleads with them to let him flee to a nearby town instead. So I, I agree with you. You know, He does fail in so many key criteria of ideal biblical masculinity. He's not brave. He's not respected by other men. And he can't protect or control his family. And I think that last point is made especially clear when even his daughters demonstrate their superior power over him by incapacitating him and raping him without him even knowing. And even though his daughters do perpetuate his family line through their sons, it doesn't make Lot a proud patriarch of the Moabites or the Ammonites. I mean, his descendants are forever tainted with the taboo of incest and they end up becoming Israel's enemies for generations to come. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think this story really shows us just how toxic hegemonic masculinity actually is. Because Lot fails as a man, he becomes a shamed and stigmatized figure rather than a victim who really does deserve our empathy. Yes, and it really bothers me that the sexual victimization is used as another way to humiliate him and kind of unman him in the story. And that's such a terrible message to give to any reader, particularly if they've also been victimized by sexual assault, as though it's something so shameful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the power of biblical texts to shape our attitudes about rape. And we spoke about that in our hashtag MeToo episode as well. It doesn't matter how ancient the story is. It, it can have a real impact on how we make sense of sexual violence today and how we treat its victims. OK, so let's uh, leave Lot for the moment and turn to the other biblical text that I want to talk about today. And that's the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. And similar to the story of Lot, not all readers actually recognise the sexual violence that's happening in this text. So could you give us a bit of background to the text, Em, then read it out? Sure. So in Matthew 27, Jesus is on trial for blasphemy. His enemies have accused him of claiming to be the Jewish Messiah and King. He's tried by Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect of the region, and after Pilate has sentenced him to be crucified, we read the following. I'm reading here from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, 
and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And then we move forward a little bit to verses 34 to 36. And we're told that after the soldiers had crucified Jesus, quote, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. So it's clear that Jesus is also naked when he's crucified and people are sitting watching him dying naked on the cross. Mm, yeah. So these verses explicitly describe a particular form of sexual violation. And if you look at the Hague principles on sexual violence, there is a comprehensive list of things that constitute acts of sexual violence. And the list includes, and I'm quoting here, having someone undress completely or partially without their consent. Mm. So we're told that Jesus is forcibly stripped, not once, but three times in front of a crowd of Roman soldiers. They strip him before putting on the scarlet robe. Then they strip him again when they replace the robe with his clothes. Then they strip him a final time when he's crucified. Enforced nakedness is such a powerful way to shame prisoners because it emphasizes how vulnerable they are. Yeah. And with male prisoners, it serves to unman or emasculate them and lets the perpetrators enforce their own dominance and power. Yeah. The Matthew passage reminds me of some of the images I've seen of prisoners of war being stripped and humiliated by their captors. It happened during the Holocaust or Shoah, at the Nazi labor camps and death camps, and also more recently at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq during the Iraq war. But this is a really ancient practice, and we read about it in a number of ancient Near Eastern texts, including the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where there are accounts of war captives and prisoners being forcibly stripped by the enemy as a sign of their shame and emasculation. And actually, I think we even find bronze images from like 700 BCE, which depict prisoners from the Judean city of Lachish, who have been stripped by the Assyrian army and are being led away into exile. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know about these. Now, we both know a few theologians and biblical scholars who've done a fair bit of work on Jesus' experience of sexual shaming. There's David Toombs and Rocio Figueroa here in New Zealand, and also Chris Greenough and James Reeve in the UK. And these scholars have spoken about the fact that they've encountered some very um, negative or, or at least uncomfortable reactions from people when they bring up the issue of Jesus' sexual victimization. Now, some people don't want to acknowledge that it happened, and some even feel offended by the suggestion that it did. So why do you think that is, Em? Why do people have this response? I can think of a few things, and some of them relate back to those myths and misperceptions about male rape we've already been talking about. Hmm. We've already mentioned that sexual assault can be a huge source of stigma and shame for a male victim. Is it seen as a sign of his failure as a man? Mm. He's feminized and emasculated through his assault. Now, for Christians, Jesus is God incarnate, God in human form. And as Chris Greenough has noted, no one wants to think of their male-identified God as disempowered or emasculated or sexually shamed. Yeah, absolutely. I think that also taps into other myths about male rape that devalue the victim or blame them or see them as somehow damaged or defiled in some way. Mm. And 
With cases of male sexual assault involving male perpetrators, there are sometimes also homophobic fears about the victim's sexuality. There's this common misperception that, that male rape only happens to gay men or that the victims become gay after their assault, which is just ludicrous. So all these myths kind of work together to stigmatize victims by viewing them as failures of masculinity. And maybe I'm just guessing here that some Christians, perhaps they don't want that stigma to be associated with Jesus. Yeah, I agree. I think these negative responses to Jesus being a victim of sexual assault really betrays the negative way our society views sexual assault victims. Yeah. And I find it really interesting that lots of Christians have absolutely no trouble accepting that Jesus was physically punished and tortured. He was flogged and spat on. He would have suffered incredible pain. He bled from his wounds. His body was pierced and broken. He died the most terrible death. In fact, some Christians go to great lengths to really emphasize and dwell on this suffering. You just have to think of like, you know, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Oh, yeah, yeah. So why is it so hard to accept that part of Jesus' trauma was sexual trauma in the form of his being forcibly stripped. Mm. It really frustrates me that this piece of the passion narrative so often gets overlooked because of our Western discourses of idealized masculinity and homophobia. Yeah, I agree. It is so frustrating because it's it's another example of how there's such a huge silence surrounding sexual assault. Mm. And victims, you know, whatever their gender, are forced to keep that silence too. They have to bottle up their trauma in case they're stigmatized, blamed and shamed. So nothing changes and our current endemic of sexual violence just continues in this overwhelming silence. Exactly. I've actually heard some people talk about Jesus' silence during his trial and his torture as a heroic silence, like a sign of his masculine bravery and stoicism. Mm -hmm. But Chris Greenough makes a brilliant point in his discussion of Jesus' sexual abuse when he says, and I'm quoting him here, that deeming silence as heroic is problematic as it discourages victims from speaking out about their abuse and against their abusers. So saying that Jesus' silence is heroic makes silence sound like the ideal response to sexual victimization, and that in turn sends a powerful message to victims today. If Jesus kept silent, then they should also keep silent. That's that's such a great point. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but oh gosh, I really love Chris's work, don't you? Me too, yeah. yeah. So any last thoughts, Em, about our topic today? Once again, I really feel like we've only just touched the surface of what is a really complex topic, which we Mm. don't talk about both in biblical studies and in contemporary culture. I'd be really interested to hear listener feedback on this episode, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, how do listeners respond to Lot being identified as a victim of rape? How do listeners feel about Jesus being identified as a victim of sexual abuse? And my sense is that there'll be a level of discomfort in talking about these figures in this way. And I think that the discomfort that people feel, particularly in talking about Jesus as a victim of sexual abuse, is really telling. It betrays our discomfort at thinking of men as victims of sexual violence. It betrays how thoroughly we have internalized those toxic rape myths about men. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I would echo everything you've just said. And and I'd also want to reiterate that we all need to keep up our effort to break the silence around sexual violence perpetrated against men and to tackle all those toxic myths and misperceptions that keep male rape victims shamed and blamed and stigmatized. Yeah. 
And and part of that process is challenging these discourses of idealized masculinity that stop us recognizing the real trauma encountered by men and boys who are sexually victimized. Yeah. And we likewise need to challenge all the misperceptions that prevent these men and boys from disclosing their trauma and from receiving the help that will hopefully start them on their journey towards some sort of healing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's end by telling listeners what we've been listening to or reading this week. Well, as as part of my research for this episode, I read the most fabulous book by the equally fabulous scholar Chris Greenough, who we've mentioned a few times during the podcast. Chris's book is called The Bible and Sexual Violence Against Men. And it's a really careful and and thoughtful study of biblical texts that depict male rape and also how these texts reflect contemporary attitudes and misperceptions about sexual violence against men and boys. Now, it's it's such an engaging and readable book, and I think all of our listeners would uh, really enjoy it. So, yeah, go and get yourself a copy. I will 100% endorse that. It is a really important book. Even better, it's short. And as you say, Kaz, it's easy to read. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've been listening to podcasts as usual, and I'd like to plug the fabulous Shiloh podcast, which is hosted by Rosie Dawson. The Shiloh podcast explores stories and practices of religion that either contribute to or resist rape culture. And the reason I'm talking about it this week is because it includes interviews with the wonderful David Toombs, who talks about his work on Jesus as a victim of sexual abuse. And of course, we've mentioned him already, Chris Greenough, who talks about his work on the Bible and sexual violence against men. It's well worth listening to. And of course, there are other superb episodes in addition to those I've just mentioned. Yeah, it's it's a great podcast. Definitely recommend it. Okay, well, thank you for listening to this episode of Bloody Bible. As usual, you'll find our show notes on the website along with links to our social media accounts. But until next time, stay safe, everyone. Bye for now. In making this episode, we would like to add the footnote that we are aware that the actor Shia LaBeouf has himself been accused of committing acts of sexual violence. In including material about the actor, we made an editorial decision not to cover the allegations made against him, but rather to focus on the act of victimisation he claims to have experienced. Bloody Bible Podcast is supported by funding from the United Kingdom Arts and Humanities Research Council as part of the Shiloh Project Research Grant. Special thanks from us to Professor Johanna Stiebert at the University of Leeds who commissioned us to create the podcast. The podcast is produced by Carolyn Blythe, Emily Colgan and me, Richard Bonifant. We also recorded and edited each episode. Unfortunately, I didn't have to apologise too much during this last one. Our music is Stalker by Alexis Ortiz Sofield, courtesy of Pixabay Music, and the podcast artwork was created by Sarah Lee West. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on our website.